Welcome back to Not Your Average BS, where we talk about what everybody else is thinking. I'm Brendy, and I'm your only host for today. Shannon is off on a trip in the Midwest, so you're just hearing from me, but I have a really exciting guest that I'm speaking with today, and I know you guys are really going to enjoy and learn from this conversation. So today I'm speaking to Erin Santos. She is the executive director of the Isabella Santos Foundation, which is a local Charlotte-based nonprofit that is dedicated to improving rare pediatric cancer treatment options for kids with cancer. This is a highly successful nonprofit, and over the course of 12 years, the Isabella Santos Foundation has funded nearly $4 million toward expanding the scope of research and treatment for families dealing families and kids dealing with cancer. And Today, Erin's going to talk a little bit about how she got into the nonprofit world, what it's like to lose a child at a young age, and really just her perspective as a mother of a kid with childhood cancer, and one that is extremely rare at that. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Welcome, Erin Santos, to the podcast. Erin, thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jumping right into our appetizer, if you guys are new listeners, this is an app, a resource, book, website, pretty much anything that you have been using recently um, or something you've discovered. So do you have anything like that to share with the listeners? Sure. Um, Two things that really come to mind. Um, I have been weirdly getting on um, newsletters to kind of kind of absorb content. So one of the ones I really like is called Morning Brew. It just arrives every morning. Um, and it's just an email newsletter that covers everything from like Wall Street to Silicon Valley, but it's informative and it's kind of witty and it's just quick. Instead of like sitting down and watching, you know, an hour of the Today Show every morning, I can kind of crank through it in 15 minutes. So um, I love that newsletter that I get. Um, and then um, you probably don't have a ton of parents on your uh, your podcast, but for parents, there's this great website called OutSchool, which is um, like over 50,000 video chat classes for kids from the um, from kindergarten to 12 years old in all subjects, not just math, English reading, but like life skills, mindfulness, positive thinking, stuff like that. And they're like, you know, our classes for like $8. So um, for parents that have kids at home, it's kind of a great way to kind of keep your kids entertained during quarantine with also something kind of fun to do. So those have kind of been two things I've kind of been into lately. That's cool. So is that second one, is it for all ages or is it geared toward a certain age? It's kindergarten through 12 years old. Um, And they, the classes they offer are just amazing. My daughter's taken things from Sudoku to, um, she did a, um, a show and tell for people that had cats and she didn't even have cats. So like she met like 10 other people and like they talked, they had their cats on show and tell. And then she did a pro, you know, I took a class on like STEM projects, but dealing with Disney world. And it's just, you know, just different things for these kids to do just to kind of get them out of your hair a little bit. And for $10, I'm like, she loved, I'm like watching her on a cat show. <laughs> she was <laughs> telling so everyone cute. that her cat was asleep. I'm like, you don't even have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Yeah, you gotta get creative, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. 
All right. So getting into today's episode, um, Shannon and I wanted to have you on. Shannon's also on um, a trip right now, so that's why she's not on today. But you are just someone that I am so inspired by ever since we met back in June when we when I started with the ISF internship. Um, and you just have so much knowledge about the pediatric cancer and nonprofit spaces. So that's really why we wanted to bring you on today. And our first question, it's kind of loaded, but we ask all of our guests this question. So who is Aaron Santos? Like what makes you, you, and kind of just take us through your story a little bit. Sure. Um, so I am originally from uh, a small town outside of Columbus called Urbana, Ohio, which is kind of like cows and corn out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. So, um, but I think that's where kind of my witty humor was formed. I think a lot of people from the Midwest kind of have a dry sense of humor. So I think that that's a large part of who I am, but Um, I went to high school there and then went to school at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and uh, majored in finance and management information systems, which is kind of like the in-between of business and technology. Um, But once I moved out of my parents' home when I was in high school, I knew I was never coming back. So um, our small town tends to be people that kind of graduate, they attend college, they marry their high school sweetheart, they stay. um, And I just knew that that wasn't going to be me. So I graduated college in 1999 and packed up a truck and drove to Charlotte. I had I knew no one in Charlotte. I had no apartment. I had no job. Um, I just moved down here. So we used to always kind of travel through Charlotte when we would go to beach vacations. And I knew it was a big banking town. So I thought, I'm just going to wing it. And I got an apartment in Ballantyne and ended up living there for like 20 years in Ballantyne, not in that apartment, of course, but, um, but I got a job, um, with LendingTree.com back in the day of like a dot-com startup, um, and all that stuff that was like so exciting. So I did that for about six years and then, um, you know, got married at the time and had two kids. And then Isabella was diagnosed with cancer, uh, my daughter, and I stopped working and then just kind of everything just kind of developed with ISF from then. So um, I think of a person that I was in college and even when I first moved to Charlotte, but um, I don't really know who that person is anymore because I think that who I became was all through watching my daughter go through cancer. It made me, not that I was a weak person, but I think I'm just, it made me such a strong mm-hmm. uh, vocal woman Um that I just look at the transformation I made through that process. And it was just, it was life changing for me. It actually made me who I am today. Um, So if you kind of say, what makes you, you, I think it's that I, the thing that draws people to me is that I'm a very real person. I, I talk normal. I talk people, you know, when I write or when I talk, people feel like I'm somebody that they would be friends with or somebody that they would know because I'm just kind of real about things. I don't sugarcoat things, you know, I'm a little inappropriate and, I cuss a lot and um, I just kind of tell things how it is. And I think that's a little bit different in the nonprofit world. So I think that's kind of what's made me me. I love that. So were your parents like freaking out when you initially packed up and you were like, I'm just going to go to Charlotte, like I'll figure it out. You know, I, I think that they wanted me to go because I think that they saw what happens um, if you don't go. If people kind of stay and get a job locally for a while, they see that, you know, I mean, my mom lived in the same town that she grew, you know, that she graduated high school in until she was 50 or 60 years old. So I think that she knew that I was always wanted more than that. Um, I always wanted to live in a big city and like own my own company and stuff like that. So I think they never kind of saw me kind of coming back. 
Yeah. Um, but I don't think they realize that I will never come, never came back. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I have long periods of time now going to Ohio. It's very cold mm-hmm. up there. So, yeah. uh, but I think they always kind of saw that in me. Mm-hmm. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about Isabella's story and kind of like what it was like when she was diagnosed. And you mentioned how much that's, that's shaped um, who you are today. So just tell us like a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so um, I, you know, I got married at, you know, 24, 25. Isabella was a honeymoon baby. Um, and when she was a year and a half, um, I had another son, um, Grant, who was just maybe 16 months behind her. And so she was only two and a half years old. I was in my late twenties and she kept complaining of stomach pain and back pain. And we kept taking her to the doctor and they kept saying, um, you know, she's constipated. She's got a bladder infection kept sending us home. And we just kept thinking, you know, not something's not right here. Um, and I think your just mother intuition just kind of kicks in to where we went and got blood work done. It was abnormal. They told us to get a scan and an MRI revealed a stage four tumor in her stomach. So, um, at the time I didn't even know anyone. I mean, I was only 26, 27 years old. So I didn't even know anyone that had cancer. Um, so I remember them telling us that it was neuroblastoma and I had to write the word down cause I'd never even heard that word before. Uh, I think that when people think of cancer, they think of St. Jude's, they think of leukemia, they think of all of the more traditional route of pediatric cancer. And then we were, we were being thrown into a word that we had never heard before. And then when you started a research, it scares the bejesus out of you. So it made me grow up really quick um, and just become somebody that was just thirsty for knowledge. Wow. That's crazy that you had, that you had, you know, being 26, that's not much older than I am now. And just like hearing something like that and just not even understanding what it, what it even is um, and having to kind of do that extra research and figure out kind of where you go from there. Wow. Right. Yeah. You know, at that age, you know, you're watching all your friends who are just have you immediately lose a familiarity, familiarity, what is that word? Familiarity. You You immediately lose um, something in common Mm -hmm. with everybody your age uh, because nobody can really understand what you're going through. So it just, it thrust us into a whole world of um, just people, just different people. It was just, it was just crazy. So I know that you guys had to do a lot of travel when Isabella was diagnosed. So what, what um, was that kind of like, just being told like, oh, there's there's no options for you in North Carolina, like you have to travel out of town to even get treatment? What was, what was that experience like? Yeah, so when we were first diagnosed, and what people will find is that when you're first diagnosed, um, your hospital is going to tell you that, that you are in the best place for what, what you have. Um, but I think that that's how we were different. We kind of started researching survivor stories of neuroblastoma. Like I was just obsessed with reading about other kids that had neuroblastoma. Were they surviving? What were they going through? And the majority of these kids that were surviving were coming out of Sloan Kettering in Manhattan. Um, So we decided to have a call with them and went up there. And here in Charlotte, we were one of five kids with neuroblastoma, but we went up there and we were like one of 250. Um, It was just, they were doing things differently. They were doing experimental treatments. Um, They were doing things that were skipping the, going through the FDA process, which is the problem of getting these new drugs 
um, approved and all this stuff, they were kind of Sloan Kettering said, we believe this is going to work. We're going to try it out on mice and then we're going to try it in our kids. And just all these parents um, just flooded up there to find these treatments. So, um, you know, at the time, my son was two. So my mom moved from Michigan down to Charlotte and kind of helped raise him. And then I would go back and forth to, to New York with Isabella. Um, we would receive treatments here in Charlotte when we could. But um, a lot of the experimental drugs that we had to get um, were in Sloan. So we would go up for maybe a week at a time. Mm -hmm. um, my husband at the time would come up with me and luckily had a corporate office that he could work out of New York City. So we would stay at the Ronald McDonald House and go in on Monday morning and get these treatments. Um, one of them was called 3F8, which um, is actually a drug that's created from a mouse antibody. Um, but when it goes into your child's body, they think it's foreign and they attack it and they say, it's like watching your children be lit on fire. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, it was the most awful treatment to watch. And, you know, New York has so many kids that there'd be a sheet, you know, a, a curtain in between you and another kid. And you would sit there and listen to them, give this child, this drug and hear him scream and scream and scream and knowing that they were coming to your kid next. I mean, it was yeah. just, I look back at some of the things that we did. And I'm just blown away that we did that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she relapsed in the brain and they did a lot of um, treatments up there for CNS relapse. So at some point we actually moved up there for three or four months, moved our entire family, including my mom and lived in a, you know, 600 square foot apartment <laughs> um, by the hospital and then just went in, in every day. And, you know, she had brain surgeries and treatments to, um, to, you know, to kill the cancer. And then we would come back to Charlotte when we could. I mean, I look back at our life and I'm just blown away that we did this back and forth mm -hmm. for almost five years. But, um, if we would have stayed here in Charlotte, I don't know if she would have lived longer than nine months. So mm -hmm. I thank God every day, even though she passed away and we put her through some horrible treatments that we got her as long as we did. Yeah. So in the end, it was still always worth it. Yeah. I think that's one thing that a lot of people just, you know, don't understand too, that it's more so the treatments and the side effects of that that are causing so many more problems than the cancer itself. And I found that in my own treatment experience too. Like there's just, like you said, there's just not enough. And I had something that was highly treatable. So I can't even imagine having something rarer than that and just trying to find, you know, the best clinical trials and the most innovative things that you can try and do to save your kids life. Like that's just, that's just so incredible. And you're, you're so strong for even like coming on today to, to share your story. And I know you've told it a bunch of times now, just being with ISF, but it still just amazes me how strong you are. Oh, well, thank you. I think the hard part about these rare cancers is that because we didn't have a driving force behind us, like LLS or something like mm -hmm. that, you're just thinking, please God, let somebody be donating money to my child's cancer. And please say that a new drug is on the horizon. And you just kept thinking, please just let her live until the next thing comes along that will mm -hmm. be the thing that saves her. And it's just a constant hope that somebody out there is doing something um, mm -hmm. that could save her. And it just could never come fast enough. So it's a very scary life to have for mm -hmm. sure. So Erin, what do you wish that people would understand about losing a child at a young age? Um, I think that's so, so heartbreaking and so tough to go through um, as a mother. So what do you wish people would kind of understand and reflect on? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, losing a kid at any age is difficult. Um, but I think that sometimes when you lose a child that is a teenager or a young adult, 
um, you can talk to them a little bit about like what's going on with them. I think that was the hardest thing to watch Isabella near the end of her life is that like things were happening to her and she couldn't understand why it was happening. Um, and of course I'll get like choked up talking about it, but, um, you know, like she would go through periods where like near the end where the tumor was in her brain and like all of a sudden she couldn't see. And like, how do you explain that? Um, to a seven-year-old is just really difficult to explain. Like, um, and you know, you go to the that live under the water and all of a sudden one of them will climb up a vine and disappear and it's become, they become a dragonfly and that your families will all be reunited one day as dragonflies. And I'm like, that's how I'm telling my seven-year-old that she's going to die. Like that's a really crappy thing to put on all of us. Um, so sorry for getting all emotional there, but well, you're good. I said, um, you know, you're just as a you just get flooded with all of the things that your kids miss out on doing, um, and whether that's all these first days of school, um, or for Isabella, you know, never being able to fall in love, or having her heart broken, or get braces, or you know, I was just thinking this morning that she would have been a freshman this year going into school. And how exciting that would have been, even though it probably would have sucked for her because it's COVID. Um, but just a lot of firsts, you know, this this upcoming March, she would have gotten her driver's license. And you think of all these yeah. things, and even from college and a job and a wedding and all the stuff that, you know, she was robbed of. And, you know, the parents get robbed of it, too. So because you have to watch everyone that was her age go through it. So it's almost like she dies every time these milestones hit all over again. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really tough. Not that losing a child at any age is easy. Um, but it's, I think it's just been really tough for me as a, having a daughter, um, Mm -hmm. to miss out on a lot of those things. So I think, you know, people think that you can lose them at a young age and you're able to rebuild your life because you lost them so young, which I have been able to do. Um, but some of these milestones still just feel like a punch in the gut sometimes. So and one of them's coming up next week. Um, so it's just kind of tough sometimes. Just never goes yeah. away. Erin, thank you so much for sharing that. We're going to switch gears now to a lighter note and talk a little bit more about ISF and its success. So ISF has obviously grown a lot. Tell us kind of what it was like when you originally started the foundation and then kind of how it's the steps that it's gone through to kind of grow to where it is today. We created the foundation um, just to kind of create awareness around neuroblastoma. A lot of people didn't know what neuroblastoma was. Uh, So we did a 5K in Ballantyne um, with the help of some friends, raised $7,000, Um, at the time that we were going through it, um, all the money was of course going to neuroblastoma and I was keeping a journal called caring bridge because at the time we didn't have Instagram and, and all this stuff. So I kept a journal, um, called caring bridge that just kind of updated people on what was going on with her, where we were, Mm -hmm. um, what, what treatment she was getting and stuff like that. Um, and just more and more people started to read this caring bridge. It just kind of it became, it started as a way to inform people of, of how she was doing. And then over the course of five years, it became my personal diary. So I think that I kind of forgot that people were reading it. Um, so I just kept writing and was kind of pouring my blood, sweat and tears into this about like what it's really like, um, the good, the bad and the ugly of it. Um, and the followers just kind of kept coming and coming. So every year, you know, you raise $7,000 and then you raise the next year, you raise 21 and then 56 and then 
you know, 98. And it just kept growing and growing so that by the time that she passed away in 2012, we had over 750,000 people that had read the Caring Bridge story of Isabella. So she was kind of becoming very well known. Um, and she was also, I know this sounds crazy, but she was kind of like a neuroblastoma PR dream. Um, you know, she was this adorable little five-year-old that would get up and speak. I mean, I've taken her to Time Warner Cable Arena back when that was called that. Um, and like, she spoke in front of like 50,000 people. I mean, she just, she would get up on stage and speak at Make-A-Wish events. And she always wanted to speak before our 5k race. She just, um, and same with her brother and he's still that way. My kids still will get up on stage. So she just kind of became a little bit of a local phenomenon. Um, and then until then when she passed away, um, you know, I tried to go back to who I was before, uh, she was diagnosed with cancer and tried to go back into work in technology. And, um, we hired, um, one person to kind of maintain the foundation so that I could kind of close that chapter in my life. Um, and it just kind of, I just couldn't, it just brought me back into it. Too many people were wanting to talk to me or see how they could help. So I ultimately in year six ended up quitting, or I guess a year after I quit that job and started working with the foundation permanently. And then it's just continued to grow. You know, we raised a hundred and some thousand dollars that first year. And then now we're on track to raise about 1.5 million, um, in our 12th or 13th year. So, we're now at the point where we no longer just give to neuroblastoma. We've now taken on all these other rare cancers that nobody seems to be helping with funding for new treatments. So we've kind of taken on all these new cancers and families um, as our own. Wow. That is so incredible. Um, so I, we actually talked about this a little bit earlier in the summer that a lot of nonprofits are just struggling right now due to the pandemic. Um, so how has ISF kind of been able, not only through the pandemic, but just over the past several years, um, you mentioned that it's grown so much with the 5k, but like, how have you guys kind of been able to still have those connections and then create that partnership and just continue to thrive and grow as a, as a nonprofit right now? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the thing that sets ISF ISF apart is that we really don't look like other charities. Um, We're a little bit more in your face and maybe not as PC as we should be, but I think we're real and that's what draws people to us. I think, you know, I'm a real mom who lost her kid and is is really pissed off about it. And, and, and especially because I feel like my family and I did everything right. We, we took her where we should have taken her. We did everything that we were supposed to do. We made all the right decisions and to still lose her. Um, it kind of really changes the way that you think. So I think ISF, the people that, that are drawn to us is because we are very grassroots too. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there that get, you know, a huge million dollar check from, a, you know, a medical company or something, and that's how they raise their money. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we go around and, and knock on doors and we're taking lots of coffee meetings and we have to learn how to get creative because a lot of our donors are average a hundred dollars. So we don't have those, ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollar donors. Um, it's just normal um families in Charlotte that support us. So I think that we cater to how to communicate to them. Um we try to talk to them a lot about what their money's doing, having them in the hospital so they can see, you know, that their money isn't going into a black hole with American Cancer Society. We're building a room, mm-hmm. you give us money in eight months, you can come and see the room and tour it and then a child mm-hmm. is going to be in it the next month. I think that's what we we really pride ourselves mm-hmm. on. So, and I think that Rachel Wood, our marketing department, um, she does a really great job of storytelling. 
Um, cause I think that these stories of these kids need to be told and she tells them in a raw way, but it's also hopeful so that our families learn, um, about them and they learn about these families. They want to help them. So I think that you just kind of have to be a little bit outside the box to be successful. And I think that's kind of what we do so mm-hmm. well, that we're just a bunch of like moms that like work out of our home that are trying to save kids with mm-hmm. cancer. And I mean, what's cooler than that? So yeah, yeah. That's so awesome. So did any of you have any nonprofit experience before you started the foundation or you kind of all just like figured things out as you went? We all figured things out as we went. And it's funny because sometimes we go and think that we should bring somebody that's a professional nonprofit person in and we do, and it just doesn't work because we're not, (laughs) we're not traditional. With the pandemic happening and you guys made the call to switch the annual 5K to virtual. So what was kind of going through your mind when you made that call? Were you kind of worried at all about what the reception would be? Um, what, what did that look like for you? Yeah, I think for me, you know, when this first happened and we all went into quarantine, um, you know, we had a big two day event that was supposed to happen a week after they shut everything down. So mm-hmm. Um, you know, we watched us, we watched us scramble. We watched a lot of nonprofits really start to scramble to throw together these like virtual events when no one really does virtual events. So, and they seem to kind of be falling a little flat. The, no one's really figuring out how to do a virtual event that's successful yet. Even people that put on these huge galas, um, and do them virtually, you know, that used to raise $2 million are now raising 500,000, which still sounds great, but that just means that like even the best people at it can't Mm -hmm. figure it out. Um, and honestly, I hate virtual events. Like I don't like zoom calls. I don't want to have like a glass of wine with my friends over zoom. Like I hate the whole concept of virtual. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it was really hard, but I felt like if we didn't figure out quickly how to, you know, I hate the word pivot as well, but how to get out of the thought of everyone thinking, oh, in three months, this is all going to be gone and maybe we'll be able to have a race. But for us, you know, we have these families with cancer that we have to think about. And if we, if things did open up just a little bit and we were able to have a race in September, but these families couldn't go because they didn't feel safe, mm-hmm. then why are we even here? Because everything we do is for them anyway. So the minute that we felt like this was going to be unsafe for them, forget the idea of like moving to virtual. We just had to make the decision for them. So, um, you know, trying to do a virtual race is really tough because I think the great concept of our race is that it's not. I always say this, it's not a, a 5k with a medal and a banana at the end. Like people stay all day. You know, you, last year we introduced a brunch concept where we had like bloody Mary's and like our families with cancer come out and they get to like meet all the donors. And it's just such a different environment. Mm-hmm. And no matter how hard we try, that's not replicable this year. So we're just really just trying to survive. You know, I read so many things about one in three charities are going to have their doors closed by the end of the year because they're so dependent on events. So we just have to figure it out. And and we've got a gala in October that we had to cancel too. So now we've got $900,000 that we were slated to raise in the back half of the year and not a single event. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get creative. You've got to reach out to donors and say, you know, you supported us years ago because you believed in us. And if you want us to be here this time next year, you have to donate this year. You have to create a fundraising page for us. You have to do a Facebook fundraiser. Like I'll leave you alone next year when we can open back (laughs) up and we can all be 
dresses and be at a gala. But right yeah. now, this is the year that if you believe in us or want us to be here, you have to support us. Right. Plain and simple. Right. So were you guys always planning to do a summer internship this summer? Or was it kind of like this might be another way to help us get creative and kind of bring in more money for ISF? Um, no, we have when 12 years, we've never had an intern, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy to me to think that, um, you know, I feel like COVID has ruined so many businesses, but for us, it has breathed a whole new life into ISF because it has made us be able to think differently. You know, we have these events every year and, you know, some, for some of us on the team are like, Oh my gosh, it's a 5k again. We need to do all the same things. And so this COVID really allowed us to take a look at our organization and be like, what could we do this year that we've never been able to do? Mm -hmm. Um, and internships was one of them. Um, you know, I have a family friend that has a daughter in college and a daughter in high school, and both of their summer internships and jobs were just killed with COVID. So, you know, I look at these two girls and I'm like, oh my gosh, what I would give to have these girls intern. So we came up with the idea of having one intern for 40 hours a week just to kind of help move things along. Mm-hmm. And then we put out the the application and we got flooded. Um, Rachel and Maitland and I sat down with a couple of you and did some interviews and we got off the phone and I'm like, you guys, we have got to take at least five of these kids. They're, you guys were all just too good <laughs> to pick one. Um, so we decided to do five interns at part time. And then within the, the time we had the idea to have one intern at 40 hours. And by the time the program was set up two weeks later, we had 53 interns, which was just absolutely incredible. Uh, you, how many times people were calling me and being like, Hey, I wonder if you can have lunch. I'm like, I know exactly what you want to know. You want to know how I set up this program. Right. And even in the fall, because of COVID, you know, a lot of internships aren't going to happen. So we're going to extend it through the fall and do something different. But I just feel like, you know, a lot of these high school and college kids, you guys just got really stuck between a rock and a hard place with this about how to start your career, how to get into college. And if there's something that ISF could do to help you guys, um, you know, we were happy to do it. And this intern team has just come in and just introduced us to a whole new way of doing things, which, you know, as a 40 year old women, we needed to learn. Um, so it's, and introduced us to an audience of an, even an age group that we never would have been in front of. So, um, it's probably been one of the best things that's happened to ISF in a couple of years. Wow. That's so awesome. I'm glad we've been able to be so successful. I mean, even, um, at the beginning of my summer, I had no idea what I was going to do because they had canceled the summer camp. I do every year for like sick kids and siblings. And I was like, I'm literally cannot sit in my parents' house all day long. Like I need to find something to do, anything to do that will like keep my mind off of things and like keep me busy. So Shannon that I do the podcast with actually sent me um, the information about the internship. And she was like, you have to apply to this. Like, you'll be so perfect for it. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. So I did. And I'm so glad that it has all worked out. It's been such a fun summer working with everyone and just being creative and seeing what we all can do for pediatric cancer. I, I never even thought that we were going to get to this much money this quickly. Um, and I know you guys didn't either. So (laughs) it's been awesome. It's well, and I love too, that, you know, in this, like, virtual age to, to meet new people is really hard. So I kind of feel like I love seeing all of the friendships that have developed through you guys, um, who a lot of you still haven't even met face to face, but I feel like a lot of you are now like friends and you keep in touch and, 
Um, I think that's just been a great thing to be able to provide too, is just mm-hmm. because I think that you know, depression can set in when you're not meeting new people and not getting out. But I love that these interns are just so excited and, um, and I don't know, it's just, it's just been great to watch and what an impact we've, we never would have thought you guys would have raised the amount that you have raised. And I know it's still coming in. So, um, it's just exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. So as someone who's been in the nonprofit space for a while now, do you have any advice that you would give to any young professionals that might be kind of looking to get in the nonprofit sphere? We have a lot of like post-grad listeners. So what would your advice to them be to get involved? Yeah, I think that um, the most important thing is to find um, find a nonprofit that matches your personality. I think that you have to have the why. I think that Mm -hmm. if you are working for a nonprofit and really don't have the heart for what it is that they're trying to do, it's going to show. I think that you have to find an organization that you believe in. You believe in their mission. You would talk to your family and friends about it. You believe so passionately. And I think that's the only way to be successful in it. So I think that there's different nonprofits that fit different charities and you just have to align with one. Yeah. That's really good advice. Wow. You're so wise. (laughs) I'm old. So that must be why. You guys always say you're old, but I don't think of you guys as old, like at all. I think of my parents as old. So (laughs) we're all in our forties. I mean, I feel feel like I'm 30 in my head, but um, (laughs) you're young at heart. So the last thing that we have is our tangible takeaway. So that's any advice or wisdom to our listeners. And you kind of touched on it with advice for nonprofits, but do you have any other advice or wisdom to offer? Um, Yeah, I think, you know, to kind of go back to the same theme of of finding something that you believe in um, and devoting time to bring change, you know, I realize that everyone kind of thinks that they're doing that through their social media post, um, but I don't know if that's really bringing change to the world. Um, you know, and it's not feasible for everybody to have a job in nonprofit and, and have your eight to five job be something that's changing. You know, a lot of people are going to have bank jobs and teachers jobs and stuff like that. So, and I believe that that's, those are still great jobs to have, but I think you have to have something outside of it that gives back or, you know, find a job with somebody who, who believes in giving back to the community. I think Charlotte does a great job um, I know you're in Greensboro. Oh, I guess you're coming to Charlotte. But I think Charlotte businesses do a really great job of getting their employees involved in the community. So I think you have got mm-hmm. to find businesses that believe in that. Um, these eight to five jobs where, you know, you can just donate a portion of your money of your paycheck to United Way. Like that's not what people want anymore. Find businesses that give back. Um, and if they don't, I'm not sure if those are the right businesses to work for. Um Honestly. So I just think, you know, to go through life with kind of blinders on and and have your eight to five job and then, you know, go to Suffolk punch with your friends and then plan brunch and go to a Panthers game. Like that's just not (laughs) how people should live anymore. Like they need to do something. So, you know, I encourage everybody to find something. And, and, you know, if ISF is, is that, you know, I would love if it was, because a lot of these kids, you know, the, the thing that we touch on is kids that are diagnosed from birth all the way up to 28 and 30 years old. So, I mean, we are, we're hitting your entire demographic. So get behind something that you can see yourself in. So, and a lot of these people that we're profiling, like these are kids just like you. I mean, you would never know that you went through what you did. So, I mean, there's so much to relate to. So just find something and get behind it and get off of the social media and thinking that's where you're making your difference. And 
posting everything. That's just, that's just noise, you know, get out and actually do something. Yeah. I love that. That is, that is incredible advice. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I will leave a bunch of information about ISF links to donate and Isabella's story in the show notes below. So you guys can tune in and how to keep up with Aaron, um, after this. Um, but thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So that is a wrap on today's episode. I really hope that you all enjoyed listening to Erin and her perspective about being a young mom, losing your child, and going through you know, such a rare pediatric cancer diagnosis, and then how she was able to turn that into her career and continuing on Isabella's legacy with the Isabella Santos Foundation. So below, I have links to Isabella's story, more information about how you can keep up with ISF or even donate if you feel led to. They have a ton of information on their website and social media about what your money is going towards and how much of a difference you're able to make in the Charlotte community with each and every donation. Make sure you are keeping up with Not Your Average BS on Instagram at Not Your Average BS or join our Facebook group, which is also just Not Your Average BS. Make sure you all also rate, review, and subscribe. We love hearing from you guys and just getting feedback on each episode and what you guys think and how, how we're doing and how we can improve. So make sure you guys connect with us there. And until next time, that's the BS. Mm-hmm.